right, so last week we covered the death of John the Baptist. Just to review a little bit, one of the things we pointed out is that uh, the circumstances of his being thrown in prison and his death were not fair, right? That it, it didn't go the way, I'm certainly, it didn't go the way he thought it should go. And the fact that, um, that he finished well, right? That he finished well. And, and for us as men, we said that's just a good role model. Both Elijah and John finished well in, in their testimonies. And so that was a powerful thing. And we walked through it. And guys, I just want to say again, it's not going to be fair, right? Church, it's not going to be fair. If we go around expecting it, to always be fair, we are going to just be really, really disappointed people. All right? It's not the issue of whether it's fair or not. It's whether we do what's right or not. Okay? In the midst of unfairness, can we do what God's asked us to do? Can we do what's right? Both John and Elijah did that, and uh, it's good. And this week now, we're going to visit... This is one of the most famous stories in all the world. Okay? Even non-believers know this story. This is a famous story of Jesus feeding... The 5,000, it's a fascinating story. And again, it's written to demonstrate uh, Jesus' divine nature. We've been talking about that. Mark's really trying to highlight that. We've seen how he had power over the creation by stilling the waves and the wind. Now we're going to see it again, only this time not in stopping something, but rather in providing something. So it's the flip side of the coin. Jesus, instead of stopping, is going to do something positive and provide. And uh, so... Take your Bibles, Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 30. And it reads like this. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now a couple of things to notice. First of all, notice here in this description, what do you notice that's different? They're not called disciples. They're called what? Apostles. This is the first time the word apostles is used in the New Testament. Okay? The shift is already taking place. Uh, they'll come back to being called disciples, but notice that word pops out there, and it's fascinating that, that it does. But this story comes off the cusp. Remember, Jesus had sent out the disciples. He had sent them out two by two, and they had gone among the villages, and they had done stuff they had never done before. It says they cast out demons and it says they healed people, right? They were people just like you and I. That had never happened, had never come close. And they were like buzzed, right? They're coming back to you. You can't believe what happened. We did this. Like they, they are pumped up. And so they're back. And, uh, um, but, you know, like anything, when you buzz like that for a long time, right, you get exhausted, right? There's a shelf life to it. So they're also kind of crashing, and uh, they're exhausted, they need some rest. And the current location is obviously not working. Uh, stuff has uh, picked up. Uh, the picture of this is a packed, hectic scene that's so crowded there's not even time to eat. And so what this says is it tells us about how the interest in speculation about Jesus has grown now. This is no longer just in little communities. This is spread far and wide and people are coming from all directions. And um, Jesus has an idea of, uh, let's, you know, let's get away. Smart call on his part. He says, come on, let's, let's get out of here. Let's get on a boat. We're going to go away. Let's take a breather. Let's get something to eat and let's just take a rest and let's catch our breath. Okay? And of course, you know how that went, right? 
So they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, they saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, this is no little feat. When it talks about this crowd getting there, uh, if you're familiar again with the geography, the towns are on the north or on the west, northeast, northwest side of the lake, right? And so Capernaum and all those towns are there. And, and what it means is that they chased them on land, and so they had to go around the north end of the lake, cross the Jordan River, scoot around the hills, and actually get there before the boat actually showed up, right? And so uh, this just gives a whole new meaning to uh, called, being called walking with purpose, right? They were intense. They were moving. And this is men, women, and children. And it shows the intensity of interest and the desire they had to be by Jesus, which, you know, if you contrast today, it's so different. You know, you say Jesus today, oh, okay, right? And, uh, you know, today people can't even get out of bed for Jesus' sake. They would say it, it takes too much effort, right? Why would we do that? That's not worth it. Versus this, they hauled over brush and thicket and rocks and gravel and river just so they could get to him. That should be the heart that we have as well. And what's amazing to me, one of the things that stands out in this passage to me um, is the incredible graciousness of Jesus. He's not irked. He's not offended. He's not put off. I would have been. Right? I know what it's like to be tired. I know what it's like to haul like this. I would have been irritated. I would have been in the mindset, you've got to be kidding me. You guys again? Right? Come on, man, I'm tired. It says he had compassion on them. Uh, that's not what I, I would have had. I would have been exhaustively annoyed. Okay? Now, I know you wouldn't. You're looking very saintly and you're more mature than I am. But uh, I would have been annoyed, right? Like, oh, I've got to do this again. And it says Jesus had compassion. I want to reiterate, reiterate that to you three times. Which goes up to show why he's God and I'm not. Because he could see their true condition. It says they were like sheep without a shepherd. They, they didn't know what direction to go in. And this, this whole picture here is a throwback of God leading and shepherding Israel in the wilderness. Remember he said, I'm going to take my people and I'll care for them in the wilderness. This is a, a parallel picture of that. And then Mark goes on to say that he began to teach them many things. And we do not know, we do not have the record of what he taught during this period, we know that uh, this is not the Sermon on the Mount. And we're sure that a lot of the stuff has shown up in the Gospels. We just don't which parts he was actually teaching here. But then now we come to the fulcrum point of the message today. And it says this. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Right here, the table is set for a lesson, both for the disciples and also a lesson for us. First off, I find it fascinating that they felt the need to inform Jesus of the circumstances. Have you ever done that? Right? Now, we may find fault with them, 
But the question is, how many times have we done that ourselves? How many times has your prayer been, hey, Lord, I just thought you should know. Or uh, have you seen this? You know, you might be a little busy. I just thought you should be alerted to this over here. Um, Thought maybe it would be good if I brought this to your attention. Right? It's funny how we pray that way. In truth, it's always a subtle jab to let God know that he should be paying more attention and get on with things quicker. Jesus isn't phased in the least, and he flips the whole paradigm upside down, and in his classic style, is only can do through the ball right back in their court. Right? Watch what he does. And so he answered them, and he said, Will you give them something to eat? What? Wouldn't that have been amazing to be there? Just watch the reaction to that? And they said to him, Ah, uh, well, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? That wouldn't even work. And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, well, we've got five loaves and two fish. Now, did a little research on this. The loaves they had were barley loaves. Okay, so barley loaves are these little flat rolls like this. Okay, and, uh, you know, Craig could eat like 10 of them himself. All right, so it's, it, they're not big things. Okay, and then he just had two little fish. So, What this says is that, let's set the stage here again. Just think of the numbers. When we say, now when we say 5,000 people, that isn't exactly correct. It was 5,000 men. Plus there were women and children. So the crowd is somewhere between 6,000 to 9,000 people. Right? It's a huge crowd. It could have even been as large as 10,000. They had big families back in those days. So we don't know the exact number, but we know it was more than five. It was a large group. So just think of a group of about 8,000 people and you have five loaves and two fish. And just with one question, Jesus kind of wrecks their carefully laid out strategy. What was their strategy? Well, you know what? Lord, it's getting late. If we sent them to the towns, they might get something to eat. And, and then we would get our rest that you were talking about. You know, Jesus, this is a really good idea. Let us help you out here, right? He just blows that whole thing up right there. You ever have God blow your carefully laid out strategy for him up in smoke? Right? And now suddenly they're faced with an unsolvable problem. Eight, uh, 200 denarii is, is the wages of uh, uh, one man for eight months. And they said, if we had that amount of money, we wouldn't even touch this thing. So they don't have the money to pull it off, and they don't have the food resources to pull it off. Okay? Five loaves and two fish ain't going to cut. You can't dice that small enough. All right? And so, and they have over 5,000 people to feed. So there's no way to improvise their way out of the, the dilemma. And that's the exact point, is that often God puts us in those kind of dilemmas that we can't worm our way out of. I'm looking across the room. I see several of you, and I know you've been there. So um, they were cash-strapped and resource-short. Notice the very clear implication of the passage that it never occurred to them and stop and ask Jesus what his answer to the dilemma was. They never said, oh, well, hey, Lord... You must have a plan. What, what's your idea? They never said that, right? They were so busy trying to solve the problem, they forgot to ask him. And the first question for us to consider today is this. 
Does Jesus have the right to ask you an impossible question? Stop and think about that for a second. Does Jesus have the right to ask you an impossible question? Does he have the right to throw something at you that there's no way you can solve it? You don't have the resources for it. You don't have the connections for it. You don't have the ability for it. Does he have a right to do that? And how do we react when he does that? Do we get mad? Do we get angry? Do we get scared? Do we get anxious? And I want to tell you that he does do this. How do I know that? Because he did it to me this week. Right? As I was doing this message, as I was writing this message and I got to this point right here, and I thought, this is a great question to ask. The phone rang. Now, I can't give you the context of the phone call because I'll blow my cover. And it's a thing between me and Jesus, so I can't let you know the circumstance. All right? Sorry. You're going to just have to hang with that and trust me. But literally, I'm sitting there. I type that question. The phone rings. I pick up the phone and I get asked an impossible question. I'm like, (laughs) this is great. Now, here's the good news. Okay, here's the good news. I have known the Lord long enough and I have the Lord drag me through enough knot holes that I have learned when these come, don't freak, Mitch. That's one of those things. The Lord's just testing you. Just turn to him and do the thing. And so I am actually old enough now and mature enough that I don't freak out and throw fit. I looked at that. I looked at this. I busted out laughing in my room and I just went, this is killer, right? I said, Jesus, this is so awesome. This is, imp- this is great. And I forget who walked in the office and said, don't worry, I'm just praying. Leave me alone. It's, it's fine, right? But I was so excited because I handled it right. I was like, you know what? I got this. God has taught me this. This I, I've been here before. And I, what are the odds, right? So I just busted out laughing. And I said, Lord, you got this. Yes, you do. And I trust you. I have no idea how this will work out. But you got this. And we're going to watch it. And it'll be great. And so I, I just want you to know that's how we should respond. And here's the lesson today. The disciples looked at the world and its resources. The, you know, what was that? That was, they said, okay, we got this many people. We know the geography pretty well. We know where the towns and stuff are. Maybe if we get them shuffled out to those places, they would have enough that they could at least get a little something to eat. So they looked at, at, at what the world could provide. Or they looked at, hey, maybe we could get enough food among the people who came that we could get enough to you know, get a little bit and parse it all out. They looked at those resources to solve the problem. Now, again, here's the problem with us reading this. And I, it, it's, it's a booger because we know the end of the story and it wrecks the whole thing. Okay? It takes all the tension out of it. Because what happens is we go, oh, well, we know because Jesus feeds 5,000 and, and he always comes through. And so there's the end of the story. Right? Stop and pause for a second. Is that how we respond in the middle of our stories? No, right? We freak, we throw a fit, we do... Why? Because we don't know the end. We, we cheat with these stories because we know the end. What happens when God asks you something impossible and he hasn't told you the end of the story? That's the real proof of the pudding. How do we react then? Right? We look at the disciples and we say, you idiots, Jesus was right there. Right? He's standing right next to you. Why didn't you ask him? Why didn't you trust him? But stop for a second. 
Are we any better in the middle of our stories? We need to get better, right? When faced with unsolvable needs, do we look to the world and its resources or Jesus and his resources? Or maybe we try to combine them. Dear Jesus, would you please let me win the lottery? Wouldn't it have been smart on their part to ask Jesus what he thought or what he was planning to do? You know, wouldn't it have been, if they had just turned and said, hey, you know what, Lord? There's no money available to do that. They got, this is not going What's your thought? What were you thinking of doing? They, they didn't, they weren't there yet, right? They were there later. But right now, they aren't there yet. They, they, they hadn't done that. As it was, Jesus was planning on demonstrating his ability in a way that would stun them. We know this story so well, right? What does it say? He commanded them to all sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And just think how many hundreds and fifties that were. Right? This is all oh, covered that whole hillside. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. Somewhere between six and 9,000 people, five loaves, two fish, they ate and they were all satisfied. Yesterday we fed around 450. And that was a huge undertaking. Can you imagine feeding somewhere between six to 8,000 out in the desert? There's no caterers out there. Right? I'm sure the people um, were more than hungry and I'm sure they ate with joy. Oh, this is great, right? And since they ate to their fill, so it wasn't like they got one and, well, that was... They, no, they could eat as many of those and as many as fish as they wanted. Right? But as that was going on, there had to be this growing awareness. Where did that food come from? Hold, hold on a second here. Can you imagine saying, hey, we didn't see any carts or camels or donkeys, you know, Joseph's catering come rolling in. We didn't, we didn't see anything like that. We saw him come on the boat. Nothing came off of the boat. There was, wait, what, what, how, look, what? Can you imagine when they were asking the disciples, how is this happening? Uh, how would the disciples... Uh, we don't know. <laughs> right? Here, have some more. <laughs> Where's I don't know, right? The disciples themselves would have been absolutely baffled. Had to be amazed. And then they just watched as the food kept coming and it started to dawn on them, oh, wait a minute. This, oh, whoa. Jesus is doing something, something. Wow, what is this? And it says it really caught them. As they watched and the food kept appearing, the reality of what was actually happening had to be stunning. We catch this powerful moment. uh, uh, I'm sorry. We catch how powerful this moment was for the whole crowd in an observation that John makes in his gospel. In John chapter 6, ironically the same chapter as Mark, but it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It was enough for them. 
this, this has got to be it. We've heard about the stories. We saw some of the hints. But if he can provide food like this, he's got to be the Messiah. Let's grab him. Let's make him king. And Jesus, knowing his greater mission, he just wisely walks off. Right? The genius and brilliance of Jesus. But there's a caveat to this whole story. If you ever heard, ever heard this story before, if you have, you probably know this, but it's always good to be reminded. It says this, And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were about five thousand men. Twelve baskets. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Including Judas. Including Judas. What does that mean? You can see Jesus do miracles and it doesn't necessarily mean you buy in. Judas was part of that group. Right? Twelve baskets of food. One reminder for each disciple. Twelve reminders that they should have been looking to him for the answer. Twelve gentle rebukes, if you will, of why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you come and ask me? And the question for us this morning is, what about us today? Are we looking to Jesus? Are, when we hit those, are our eyes on him? Or is it on the world? Is it on the resources? Is it on our ingenuity and our ability to work things out? Or do we just go to say, hey, Lord, I don't know how to fix this one. What are you thinking of doing? Do we look at the problem or do we pray? And do we pray first or problem first? John gives us a beautiful picture here. Again, in his gospel, Jesus is talking, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. This is about this incident. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill with the loaves. Do not, I wonder what bread made by Jesus tastes like. Just... All right, rabbit trail, sorry. But because you ate your fill of the loaves, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus said, look, keep your eyes on me because God's seal is on me. I am who I claim to be. So keep your eyes on me because God will feed you with a food that will endure unto eternal life. Jesus goes on after saying this, and he said to this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the source of this stuff. I produce the food you eat, I produce the water you drink, and I am your source. Will you keep your eyes on me? Will you look to me? And You know, that was true 2,000 years ago, right? It was true for the disciples. They learned that lesson. But isn't that true today? There are so many distractions today and there are so many opportunities of our own ingenuity and cleverly working our way through some circumstances to figure out how I can pull this off. That we get to the place where we, we no longer look to the Lord. And what Jesus is saying is, keep your eyes on me. Church, Keep your eyes on me. No, no. This way. Not me. Keep your eyes on me. Look this way. And we get easily distracted. We get thrown off. We get scared. We get frightened. We All those things. 
And in the midst of that, when Jesus asks us an impossible question, the response is, Lord, I don't have a clue, but my eyes are on you. Right? That's how you finish well. Yesterday when we did Bob's memorial service, it was unbelievable the testimony that, that came out through the room. It didn't matter if it was his family. It didn't matter if it was AA. It didn't matter if it was the prison ministry. It didn't matter if it was run to win. It didn't matter if it was his co-workers. It didn't matter if it was the baseball people. They all said the same thing about Bob across the board. It was amazing. They wrote stuff out. They all wrote the same stuff. But the most powerful testimony came from his children. I told the group, I said, man, if my kids say half that stuff about me at my funeral, I'll be thrilled. Okay? But it was a powerful story of how God, how Bob had modeled Jesus for them. And they had seen the changes. They had watched his life. His oldest daughter said, you know what? As I watched dad change, I wanted to run to that Jesus he was showing me. Okay? How do we get people to be attracted to Jesus. Are you frustrated with that? I know I am. One of the ways we can do that is very simple. Keep our eyes on Him. When I got that phone call yesterday, or this week, I sat there and went, oh, Jesus, me, you. You got this. Okay. Fabulous, right? What's my job? My job is not to worry about it. My job is not to figure it out. My job is not to... My job's. You know what, Jesus? You got this. It's going to be fun to watch what you do. Okay? How about yours? What's the challenges? What are you up against that's the impossible? And what's Jesus saying to us? Keep your eyes on me. That's really important today. And I don't... So here's the deal. What God teaches, he tests. Right? I got tested this week before it was even happening. So if you get tested this week, I bless you. Okay? Glad you're joining me. But... What God teaches, he tests. So I don't know what the test will be this week. I don't know what's going to get shaped out, but I can guarantee you there will be some, and for some of us, there's going to be some of these impossible questions. And in the midst of that, I know what the answer is. We need to keep our eyes on him. Keep our eyes on him. No, keep our eyes on him. Keep your focus on him. Let him play that out. And if we do that, we will be a church that people start to notice because impossible things are going to happen. Jesus says, nothing's impossible with God, right? Will we keep our eyes on him so that he can demonstrate that? That's our challenge, church, right? I believe you will do a great job. I believe this isn't a new message for us. I believe we've walked in this for a long time together. I believe God has been encouragingly bumping that message with us as a group of people. So let's, let's harness it this week. If you get hit with something, what's the thing? Keep your eyes on him, all right? Call somebody up. Say, you know that thing Steve was talking about? I just got walloped. Pray with me. I got to keep my eyes on him, all right? God, get us a different pastor. He keeps bringing these things up. <laughs> ah, what's our goal this week? Again, I don't know, but keep our eyes on him. Have you gotten the message? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are my friends, my buddies. We've walked with faith. And um, it's been an awfully big week. We bless you for Bob. Going to miss him terribly. 
And Lord, we, we know as uh, sometimes as a church we fly along and it feels like an airplane with all the parts flying off of it, particularly in my role. Reminder that you are the airplane. You're, you're the one who keeps us up. And Lord, as we talk about this morning about keeping our eyes on you, all of us know our stories. I know, we know our journeys. We know when we did that well. We know when that badly. I'm so grateful you prompted me the moment that phone call came in. Steve, do you believe this? And I, I, I did. And it's going to be fun to watch. Lord, I think those of us here this morning also have those things. So as we do that, may you be pleased this week when something like this happens and we're out-resourced or there's no possible way to raise the money or there's no possible way to do whatever needs to, whatever it is that's the threat or the challenge. May we keep our eyes on you. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen.